Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. As Anglicans, we're not choosing whether to be Catholic or Reformed or Catholic or Evangelical, but we recognize that the best way to be either is to be both. It's crucial to have a broad enough view of Christian theology and practice so that you can minister to those different kinds of people and have a real appreciation and even a love for where different people are in their journeys. The Living Church serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Welcome back, podcast listeners. Let me just first say that I request your prayers. I am still recovering in a good way from some very merry adventures in England and Wales, and I'm suffering from some pretty serious sandwich cake and meat pie withdrawal. Pray for me. In two weeks, we'll be taking a summer break from the podcast, but two weeks after that, so a month from now, I'll be sharing my British adventures with you in a special storytelling episode of the Living Church Podcast. I've never done anything quite like this before with an episode, a bit more spiritual memoir meets journalism, and I'd love for you to join me. Accompany our pilgrim band of Episcopalians as we ramble the countryside, bop around London, hobnob with bishops and saints, and discover the secrets of this ancient isle. For now, we're headed in the other direction to the Republic of Texas, which, as a Texan once said to me, has more history than any other state, to talk to the new rector of Church of the Incarnation in Dallas. He shared time with me from his new office to chat about inter-Anglican relationships and what he sees as signs of hope and how bread and butter daily ministry is both the past and the future of the church and what the gifts of Anglican spirituality seem to offer particularly to our moment. We also talk about how being influenced by other Christian traditions can shape the way we embrace our own and can help us be present as fruitful, non-anxious presences in the body of Christ. Before becoming rector of incarnation, the Reverend Dr. Christopher Beely served as the director of the Anglican Episcopal House of Studies and the Jack and Barbara Bovender Professor of Theology, Anglican Studies, and Ministry at Duke Divinity School. Before joining the Duke faculty, he taught for 16 years at Yale Divinity School. The author of several books, Christopher regularly consults on leadership and program development and speaks nationally and internationally on Christian theology, spirituality, and church leadership. 
Now find your biggest cowboy hat and your copy of Julian of Norwich or Jeremy Taylor, whichever one you prefer, and settle in. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Christopher, thanks for coming on the podcast today. It's a pleasure. Wonderful to be with you. So are you in your office at Incarnation? I'm coming to you from the rector's office of the Church of the Incarnation in Dallas, Texas. Have you discovered yet any Texas charms? Maybe you don't know this about me, but I'm actually a native Texan. I, I grew up in Houston and at, at our own St. Martin's Church. So, no, I didn't know uh, that. It's, it's wonderful to be back in Texas. Shannon, my wife, and I had been out of the state for 25 years. So here we are, and it's been fabulous. Aren't those surprise life moves some of the best? Those surprise vocational moves? I don't mean like surprise, you lost your job. I mean like the surprise the ones, you know, yeah. that are moves. I find that they're often like the Lord's surprises are some of the best. They really are. I totally agree with you, Amber. And they're so amazing because it's, you know, it's when we can see God's hand unmistakably, you know, and yeah. it's not that God's hand isn't there in the moments that were more planned and less surprising in those, you know, stages of your life or career that you were working hard and you got to your goal. But the surprising moments are when the veil is lifted, you know, <laughs> and uh, you can just see God's activity in a rawer form be because it usurps our own. Can you tell us in a nutshell, what has been your journey into the Anglican and Christian leadership world? Can you tell us a bit about your background and your ministry journey? Sure, I'd love to. I'll, I'll try to give you a short version. So I'm a very ecumenical Anglican. I'm actually a cradle Episcopalian, of which there are still a few of us around. But I had lots of different church and ministry experiences growing up through school, high school, college, young adulthood, and so on including both what we would still call evangelical ministries mm -hmm. and over time, you know, deep experience and firsthand belonging in you know, Roman Catholic communities, connections with Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox communities and colleagues. So through my work uh, initially in patristics, especially in early church theology, I've, I've sort of rooted and grounded myself in, in the tradition of the, of the church Catholic throughout history. So you know, I understand Anglicanism to be a maybe the preeminent expression of that kind of ecumenical Catholicity. We are, as Anglicans, we are reformed or evangelical Catholic Christians who belong to this tradition that flowed through England. That's just what Anglicanism is. I celebrate the fullness of that Anglican heritage, and I've, I'm, I'm blessed to have lived through a lot of it in my own life. I'm glad that you said that because I was wondering why you remained an Episcopalian. If you've had these deep relationships with other Christian groups, many people have this experience of communion with other Christians, particularly Catholic or Orthodox Christians, and they say, oh man, this is, you know, I found home. And you seem to persistently still feel that that being Episcopalian was home to you, and it sounds like you've just described why. Absolutely. One of the blessings, you know, privileges and glories of being Anglican is we're, we're, we're part of the fullness of the Catholic tradition through all of the centuries. And that's been a, a hallmark of Anglican identity since the very early centuries of Christianity in England, but um, also in the 16th century in the Reformation and beyond. Anglican 
church leaders and divines quite explicitly anchored themselves and identified themselves with the early and medieval traditions of the church and had the genius and the grace to recognize that the best way to be a historical Catholic Christian is also to be reformed. Because in order to preserve essentials, you have to discern what's not essential so that the essentials remain clear. So for Anglicans, and I had told students for taught students for 20 years in seminary teaching that you know, as Anglicans, we're not choosing whether to be Catholic or Reformed or Catholic or Evangelical, but we recognize that the best way to be either is to be both. The best way to be Evangelical is to be fully Catholic. The best way to be Catholic is also to be evangelical and reformed. And for those of us in the English-speaking world, I, I still think the best representation of that kind of Christianity is, in fact, Anglicanism. I wonder what kind of influences, even today in your ministry, you can look back and say, I think that I caught that from my time in Roman Catholic communities, or I think that I caught that in my time with Orthodox communities. How were you shaped by them in your leadership? Having relationships with other priests and teachers and leaders from these other churches has been very nourishing for me. And what many people experience through ecumenical exchange is those moments of mutual recognition when you recognize one another mm. as a real Christian mm -hmm. or a true, true priest of the church. When mm -hmm. I studied at Notre Dame for my PhD, for example, uh, my supervisor was a Jesuit theologian, Father Brian Daly, and Father Brian recognized me as a fellow priest from the first day of my program. So, wow. and we we had a, still have a very close relationship. I'm 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 very close to Eastern Orthodox colleagues, and at the same time, I I I think I understand the language and a lot of the ethos of different forms of evangelical expression and even Pentecostal charismatic. Christianity. I served a few years back with Episcopal permission. I actually served on the staff of a vineyard church in Connecticut Fantastic. For, for a year or so as a piece of ecumenical outreach. So when I lived in Germany, I was I was part of a, a charismatic Roman Catholic house church and journeyed with this group of people. I remember fondly to the cathedral in Cologne for a charismatic revival service, which was presided over by the Roman Catholic Archbishop. Rock <laughs> the on. I yeah, so you know, those kinds of amazing experiences where you see what, you know, as a result of sin and the divisions of the world, we tend to divide up into different kinds of Christianity. Again, part of the, part of the blessing and the benefit of Anglicanism is that we're able to see that these aren't, all, these aren't different or divided at all. They actually belong together in a really beautiful way. Christopher, I was just at my parents' church in Tampa, Florida, which is a mid-sized Pentecostal church, lovely church, deeply interracial, very vibrant, energetic congregation. Mm, and there are lots of parts of the worship that, that even though being raised Pentecostal, I sometimes have a hard time knowing, I'm not sure how to engage in this moment, but I can at least stand here and wait for a moment to engage. And one of these moments came, interestingly, when a song was being sung. One of the lines was, we, your people, give you reverence. And this connected me in my mind to Orthodox Christians and being in those communities and giving reverence before icons to the Lord. And mm -hmm. so I found myself just sort of bowing and and 
being really amazed once again by the way that we can be so different. And there's so many ways in which we're truly divided and have a lot of work to do. But these moments when the Holy Spirit says, ah, yes, yes, I am the same. I'm the same one here and there. You guys just keep working on pulling it together. <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> I've had similar experiences. And in line of all that, it's it's nice to be able to celebrate the role that Anglicans and Anglican leaders have had in fostering the ecumenical movement itself. Yeah, uh, that's and, right. And also, you know, relatedly, and we're talking, you know, late 19th, early 20th century, the recovery of earlier traditions of the church, the the ressourcement and nouvelle theologie movements and the, the, the reinvention of the field of patristic studies and medieval theology, we were at the heart of all that together with some of our French and German brethren and Jesuits and others. So that's deep in our tradition is to be ecumenical like that, ecumenical in a deeply Catholic sense. So if you're listening right now and you've not become Anglican yet, it is not too late. <laughs> well, this brings me to a question about your previous work as the director of the Anglican Episcopal House of Studies at Duke. Speaking of recognizing one another as Christians, you know, I mean, so let me just say a little bit about what AEHS is for those who don't know. I was part of this house when I was at Duke, and it's this pretty unique experiment. I think Noshota House does something really similar where you're bringing together students who are Episcopalians, students who are from the ACNA and other non-Episcopal American Anglican denominations, and they are learning together. They're, you know, they're in yeshiva, they're in seminary together, but they're not just learning together. They're praying together. They're eating together in the refectory and they're building these really powerful relationships that if they don't change anyone's minds about issues are, are at least very much breaking down kinds of stiff relational walls and, and prejudices and I can say all that without having been the director of AEHS. So I want to go a little deeper and learn a little more. What did you learn in your time as the director of AEHS? Did anything surprise you in navigating and leading that community? Oh, yes, indeed. I learned a lot of things and was surprised many, many times and would, would tell people so. It was a wonderful experience. I'd spent 16 years at Yale Divinity School and Berkeley Divinity School at Yale. So I was at Yale when the developments occurred that led to this schism and denominational splitting and so on. Hmm. So I lived through it first there. And when I was considering the move to Duke in 2016, 2017, I saw, as I got to know the place, I saw what I thought was an amazing opportunity in the Lord for very important work going forward, where here, here was a, an Anglican seminary community that's, that's anchored in the tradition of the church, that's a, a largely traditional place, albeit very open and in dialogue and part of a major university, and so with a great diversity as well. I kept telling people that the potential of the program there was even greater than I suspected, and that potential has to do with what you've described of the ecumenical Anglican experience between Episcopal, ACNA, and other kinds of Anglicans, I was not surprised to learn and experience very up close those sorts of relationships that you're describing, because I'd already seen them before. But what I learned so much more about was 
just the extent to which, especially students in their 20s and 30s, are in a very different space. And it, it, it's almost a different world to them as different sorts of Anglicans. So, and I've seen students continue to say these things even since I've left more recently, students who are there, that they, they may disagree about one issue or another, but it's not their fight. It's mm. just not their fight. This whole division between the Episcopal Church and ACNA, it happened a generation ago now. It happened for reasons that most of these students, frankly, would probably not want to divide a church over. But moreover, we've seen so many other issues come to the fore of our national social consciousness that are extremely important, like racism and economic justice and the environment and so on. And it just wouldn't occur to most of these people to make any single issue the defining issue that's going to decide whether to create a whole new church or not. So that's just one way of describing it. In more positive terms, the, and here was probably the biggest surprise of all, was that the thing that made it work was not that we tried to be a big tent and everybody agreed to lay down their swords and not talk about controversial issues. That kind of peace never works because it's weak and frankly, it's kind of boring. You have to just sort of deny a lot of things about yourself. But what made it work was a robust, substantive, positive experience of doing theological education and ministry formation in the gospel for the sake of God's church, doing that together. Everyone needs to learn New Testament. Everyone needs to learn church history and ethics and learn how to preach and do pastoral care and visit people in the hospital and so on. But the actual experience of doing that together and being committed to those things is what really held it together. I was further surprised to see the, the fluidity of many of our students, the identity of where they belong. We saw students go from one church to another. And frankly, at the end of the day, most of our students would be perfectly happy to work in a church, a parish, in either church, as long as it was healthy and solid and, you know, a growing place and that sort of thing. That's interesting that, to hear. Indeed, indeed. That's So that's the sort of thing that I would find myself communicating to bishops about and trying to hmm. help them to understand this generation of seminarians. It's just an incredible learning experience. Hmm. Hmm. You said that those who are students in the Anglican Episcopal House, they weren't there in 2009. You know, they weren't there in the 1970s. And so you said they're sort of like a different world. But it struck me because the GAFCON meeting in Kigali that these things really aren't in the past. I mean, the 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 divide, officially speaking, seems to just be getting wider and wider. So I wonder how you think what they're learning in a place that is ecumenical in an inter-Anglican sense will bear fruit in their ministries going forward in these various denominations. I mean, if you're a pastor in a parish, will you have, and you're an Episcopalian, will you realistically continue to have contact with a CNA brothers and sisters? What, what kind of fruit do you think that that's going to bear in the years to come in their lives? I think you've, really put your finger on a major aspect of that fruit, which is the relationships. If, if you really see it up close or experience it, as, as you're intimating, these are relationships of support, of collegial ministry, of a sense of working together. 
they have an, an actual experience of being part of one church. I mean, as Anglicans, we believe there actually is only one church. The mystical body of Christ, even the visible church, is one church in Anglican doctrine. See Richard Hooker, especially if you're in leadership, and this cannot be overemphasized. It's more important to have a dogmatic, spiritual, and existential understanding of what it means to be part of one church. And when you say that, well, who would disagree? Okay, everybody wants to be one church. I think the main resistance is not ill will or a desire for division, but simply the fact of our divided organizational structures. When you get out and work in church ministry, whether you're in the ACNA or the Episcopal Church, you go to these meetings and not those meetings, and you report to those bishops and not the other bishops. Do you see? So mm-hmm. yeah. you just, you, you just, your life sort of becomes, you have this community formed around you. It's just the the result of being part of the institution, the organization that you're in. So that's the biggest obstacle of anything is just the, as Henry Chadwick once said, is the fact of division itself is really the cause of division, paradoxical as that may seem. So the relationships I think that people form are truly supportive. And I know some of our graduates who are still in touch with each other, praying for each other and and keeping in touch and going to each other's ordinations and things like that. So, and I've heard several bishops say, that's the hope for the future of this movement. So, Yeah, yeah. And keeping in touch over the phone, exchanging sermons and asking for feedback on sermons, calling each other for prayer, that kind of thing. So these informal contacts stand out to me as important. And then also what I have heard in what you've said, although you've not said it, is this incredible lack of anxiety that seems to be present in this up-and-coming generation of Anglican ministers, that they just don't have anxiety about the same things that have been present, such as tech versus ACNA kinds of stuff. Would you say that that's true? I would, and that's a that's a great way to put it, Amber, is to think about it in terms of what exactly is our anxiety. It's not that today's younger seminarians don't have anxiety. They just don't have anxiety about these are not the dominant. There's a lot of other things to have anxiety about right now. That's right. That's right. We have a lot of other things to worry about. What's the future of our society and community? And am I going to be lonely? And what's the future of the planet? And when you have these other anxieties, it becomes harder and harder to fixate your anxiety on just one thing, particularly say the issue of human sexuality that's divided the churches. And that that's not to say that that's not an important issue and that or, or that people don't care about it. I think we should care about it, but it's not the driving anxiety to be sure of the current generation of seminarians. And I think you would see this at a number of different schools and spaces. Hey there, podcast listener. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you probably know that The Living Church is not just a podcast. Oh no, my friend. TLC is a publishing ministry with a unique magazine, independent church news reporting, a stellar theology blog, resources for parish ministry, many of them free. I could go on. Stop me now. Stop me now. We're rooted in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion, but we have a big heart for the unity of all God's people. You know that I love that you're here, but I don't want you to just stay in the podcast space and miss out on other ways our ministry might serve you. You can go to livingchurch.org and see what all TLC offers. How can we serve you today? 
one way we might serve you is coming up in September. We're hosting an event with an amazing community of friends at All Souls Episcopal Church in Oklahoma City, a conference called The Human Pilgrimage. What does it mean to be human? How do we live fully as creatures loved, limited, and liberated by God? Join The Living Church September 26th to 28th in Oklahoma City and be refreshed by three days of world-class keynotes, friendship, and meditation on who we are as creatures in Christ. Right now, you also get 15% off all tickets with the promo code EARLYBIRD. Go to livingchurch.org forward slash events for more information and to buy your tickets. And I hope to see you there. Is there anything that you see as key to the future of flourishing leadership in the Episcopal Church and the wider Anglican family? I do. I think that the keys to future leadership in the Anglican family are rooted in the bread and butter of ministry. The bread and butter aspects of ministry have not changed in 2,000 years. The call, the demands, the importance, the excitement, the fear and challenges of church leadership are largely the same in every generation. Our job as church leaders, especially priests and bishops, is to lead the church to guide people towards God and Jesus Christ by the Spirit's power, uh, which is a work that the tradition calls the cure of souls. You know, administering the medicine of the gospel to all manner of conditions. Pope Gregory the Great and his pastoral rule interestingly uses the same term for a priest as he does for a bishop. It's the same ministry. The one just has more authority and jurisdiction than the other. And that's what the saints have taught us throughout the centuries. So, you know, at the heart of pastoral ministry in church leadership, it's it's the cure of souls in a parish setting or diocesan setting. It's being united and integrating, integrated through and around that ministry. It's being one church. And that's, again, the ecumenical pressure that's always there for any parish priest or lay minister or, or whatever. Ecumenism isn't something that officials do in international dialogues alone. Hmm. It's something that we're all always part of. So the unity and the oneness of the church are bread and butter for church leadership. But in, in actual practice, in addition to all of that, there are all of these other values and virtues and the vices that you try to resist and struggle against, it takes a lot of work to do this leadership. It not only takes faith, hope, and love in in a theological sense, but again, you know, look at any period of church history or any example of a great church leader. It, It takes a lot of work and sacrifice, struggle and suffering. And that comes with incredible joy and thanksgiving and growth in Christ. So here's maybe some of the practical payoff of what I'm saying. It's when we forget those things that the train gets off the tracks. Hmm. When we start worrying about other things, or we start worrying about whose club am I in, or where's my turf, or those arguments only happen because we've lost our focus. I'm glad that you brought up the virtues and the vices. And I'm assuming that that's that you're you're talking about having attentiveness to how those operate in your parish or in your ministry among among your flock as well as how they're operating in your own life and that brings me to your work in anglican spirituality what are the things that most recently 
you have found coming up over and over again? What are some of the mm-hmm. virtues or the vices that you you keep seeing coming up as a thread as you're studying, as you're praying, as you're ministering to people, as you're working on a sermon? What are the themes that you keep returning to in the area of spirituality in, in the past few years? That's a wonderful question. I've had the the privilege and the blessing of teaching Anglican theology and spirituality for 20 years. And I can tell you that I never tire of teaching it. I never got tired of teaching that class. <laughs> so whether it's Cranmer and Hooker or C.S. Lewis or F.D. Morris or Evelyn Underhill or Rowan Williams, we have an amazing tradition. I would say that the major themes are, they're not even yet virtues. They are habits and structures of life and practice. So, for example, a deeply biblical spirituality, the Anglican divines, you know, teach and and demonstrate and exemplify over and over again what a deeply biblical spirituality looks like. Of course, the, the Book of Common Prayer is actually mostly filled with quotes from Scripture and so on. So it's a biblical spirituality. At the same time, of course, it's a liturgical spirituality, and most Anglicans would want to say that in one way or another. I think that, I mean, it's often said, but I don't mind saying it again, the general theme of holiness is quite central to the tradition of Anglican spirituality, whether in its, at times, more divisively evangelical forms or its more divisively Anglo-Catholic forms, everybody agrees that the pursuit of holiness is central to what we do. Part of the charisma of Anglican identity is that we are not too specific and unique about certain things. You know, we don't have a single modern theologian that defines our identity like a John Calvin or a Martin Luther, or even a single medieval theologian like Thomas Aquinas provided for the Roman church until fairly recently. So it's precisely that long Catholic common deposit of the tradition uh, that makes us Anglican. So when you ask about virtues, one thing that I would single out that is just part of a somewhat unique part of our history is the combination of, let's say, uh, learning and evangelical fervor or piety in a in a more Catholic version. Ours has always been a learned tradition, and there have sometimes been tensions over that and unfortunate looking down on so-called enthusiasts and so on. But at its best, it's really the marriage of the life of the mind and of the heart and of the body through our liturgical celebration, our service and our outreach, the, the, the amount of social outreach that we see in Anglican tradition, especially since the 18th century, is mind-blowing. Is is there a story, Christopher, about enthusiasm and studiousness? I mean, when you said that, that struck home so so clearly for me. I had an, a very profound experience reading, being a member of a vineyard church and reading Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love and recognizing something right. of what I would call Pentecostal spirituality, really mystical spirituality in in her. So was was there a particular aha moment for you? That's a great term for it, Amber, is a mystical spirituality that, that makes sense in an Anglican framework historically. Well, there have been several aha moments. I, I well, when I was brought on staff of a vineyard church, I was I was asked to teach some of that very material and kind of our deep Catholic historical theology in that space. Another aha moment for me was as a researcher and a teacher in 
reading in some of the communities of the church fathers experiences that and phenomena that we would now call charismatic. St. Augustine talks about these things going on in Hippo around his church. St. Gregory Nazianzen's sister would sneak into the sanctuary and smear the reserved sacrament on her wounds in order to seek healing. It's a kind of a modern myth that with the Constantinian Revolution, the church all of a sudden got very straight-laced and wasn't very fun and interesting. That's just not at all the case. So, and I'll give one more um, aha moment in the middle of the 17th century when the, the English Civil War, when the you know our church at the time in England was literally at war with itself. You see people on both sides of the battle. I'm thinking of Jeremy Taylor on the Royalist side and Richard Baxter hmm. on the other side. If you read Taylor and Baxter, they're mostly saying the same thing, hmm. that we need to focus on the essentials of the faith and that these outward trappings that we're fighting over, these are not essential. And so there was an aha moment of two very differently aligned leaders and theologians and pastors wanting to do a lot of the same thing, and, and specifically along the lines of what we might you know, think of very unhelpfully as these divisions between high church and low church spirituality. I mean, Michael Ramsey did a wonderful job in his gospel in the Catholic Church and later writings in really trying, trying to poke a hole through that illusion when Archbishop Ramsey, later Archbishop Ramsey, argued, again, that the evangelical and the Catholic faiths are one and the same, and we need yeah. to stop thinking of them as different things. I mean, there's something beautiful to be so rooted and so confident in letting God work from where you are, whatever tradition that is, that you're non-anxious, you're sort of a non-anxious presence in Christendom, so that you can be open to the revelations of God that tend to manifest, that seem to tend to manifest in certain times and places in particular traditions and seem to be characteristic of particular traditions, but really are characteristic of the church. I've always been struck by people who are the most rooted and the most friendly and open people to the Holy Spirit and what he wants to do and also to other Christians. No, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I think the best way, maybe really the only successful way to maintain that openness and what you're describing as non-anxious attitude is to have a positive substantive experience of the goods of the tradition. And uh -huh. I think C.S. Lewis expressed it well in his, the, 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 his little essay on the reading of old books that he wrote as a preface to Athanasius that if you actually study the tradition or if you actually experience the church in these different forms, you will discover experientially that you can actually keep bumping into the same thing over and over again. Right. And But it's it, you have to have the actual positive, real experience of that to, to live within the lifeblood and the life stream of that tradition, wherever you happen to first encounter it or start from. Lewis also said, and with reference to the tradition of Western literature, it doesn't really matter whether you start. You can start anywhere and work your way backwards to Homer and work your way forwards to today's novelists. Because again, there's only one church. I mean, that's our doctrine. And so once you get into, you know, the deep 
rich, thick stuff of Christianity that lives and comes to us through the tradition. You might be reading, Lewis said, you, you know, one day you're reading John Bunyan, and the next day you're reading Thomas Aquinas, and lo and behold, they say a lot of the same things. <laughs> so, but it's 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 having a positive experience of that, which then creates the stability and security to not be anxious about, well, what does somebody else think or worship or pray or look like? That we can actually be one church together. It's very hard to have that non-anxious presence until you've had that experience. And I think elsewhere, when Lewis was describing his reluctant conversion, I think he's describing something similar to this when he says that Christians, whatever tradition, seem to all kind of have the same smell about them. It's like they sort of all yeah. smelled the same. Do you remember mm -hmm. reading that? I do, I do. And of course, that's a biblical image. We have a name for that smell. It's called the aroma of Christ. Right, the fragrance of Christ, yes. The fragrance yes. of Christ. And uh, yeah, it's a real thing. And that sort of ecumenical test, it becomes the test of our own faith and our own piety is whether we're able mm. to smell that fragrance in our brothers and sisters who might be in a different sort of worshiping community. It's a very important test. And who might be in a different place on their theological journey, I think, is is important to remember as well. I agree with you, probably because what I'm imagining is, and this is very important for church leaders, is that once you have a full enough view of the complete system of Christian theology and practice, then it becomes very easy to have that kind of charity to one's neighbor, that it, for different people to be on different points of their theological journey. Well, who isn't? I mean, we all are. Yeah, right. But to put it negatively, if we have that sort of prejudice towards one another, well, that's just a reflection of our own narrow-mindedness. Because the whole universe of Christian theology, or let's just call it heaven, is so vast and beautiful and rich that none of us will ever fully inhabit all of it, um, or uh, let alone understand all of it. And the more of that you see, then again, it's the beautiful benefit of a positive appreciation of encounter with the richness of God's grace and even sacred doctrine. But for those who are charged with the spiritual and pastoral leadership of the church, it's crucial to have a broad enough view of the whole system of things, the universe of Christian theology and practice so that you can minister to those different kinds of people and absolutely have a real appreciation and even a love for where different people are in their journeys. Yeah. Well, if we're going to talk about spirituality, an area that you've spent a lot of time in, then obviously we're going to talk about saints. So I'm guessing that there are in your spiritual Rolodex, a whole lot of saints. <laughs> Happily <Is> there... there are. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I would love for you to pick one that stands out to you really boldly as exemplifying the kind of virtues or leadership skills that you think are greatly needed in our moment. Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, you're, you're making me pick only one. I would love to be able to say a few words about St. Augustine, who is, is still an incredible model for me. Um, especially in this moment. Now, and Hippo or Canterbury? I mean Hippo, yeah. Hippo, okay. Yeah, St. Augustine of Hippo. And, you know, one can 
talk about a hundred different things about St. Augustine of Hippo. That's part of being a great figure, but I'm thinking of two things about him. One is perhaps most famously his learned theological ministry. It's, I, I remember when I first realized this and I shared it with students many times, I, I was flabbergasted the day that I realized uh, that St. Augustine had written Confessions and the Trinity and the City of God and these other, not to mention, you know, thousands of other pages of writings while he was a practicing bishop and a working pastor of the cathedral congregation in Hippo. Oh, and not to mention running a diocese and occasionally running down to Carthage for theological debates. It's just utterly incredible. So again, maybe this is a very Anglican thing to say as we celebrate the learned pastorate, the learned priesthood. St. Augustine easily remains a model for us in that respect. And I, I know he is a model for many others for the same reason. So of having deeply theologically learned and generative pastoral leaders is, is needed now as much as any other time. The other reason I think about Augustine when you ask that question is really the the Augustinian ecclesiology that we have inherited and that we lay claim to as Anglicans. And I'm thinking of Augustine's anti-Donatist writings, you know, his, his resistance to these divisive pressures that want to pull apart the church. And it's, it's not only St. Paul, but it's St. Augustine who gives us as Anglicans this emphatic, relentless pressure to focus on the essentials. Yeah. And, and just and for those who may not know about the Donatist controversy, this was a group of Christians who said, if there is a priest who celebrates the Eucharist and that priest is a sinful man, then the Eucharist is not valid. The celebration of the sacrament is not valid. Augustine I mean, said, no, that is incorrect. Yeah, this is well, God's right. grace that makes it valid. Yes, that's right. And, and Jesus is the president of every sacrament, not the priest at the altar. So always important to remember. But part of that same idea of you know, resisting that idea of, you know, the moral impurity somehow of the celebrant invalidates the sacrament. And Augustine was right to say, no, that's not at all the case. You know, another side of that same coin is the positive pastoral doctrine that the church is mixed and will always be mixed. We, we have to resist the notion of a pure church. And at the same time, we have to vigorously practice the cure of souls, the pursuit of holiness, as we were just talking about earlier, and the idea that the fundamental job of a bishop or a priest is to faithfully teach apostolic doctrine. The, the idea of a mixed church doesn't at all mean we have a mixed message. Hmm. So our doctrine needs to be true and clear and delightful and persuasive, as he says in De Doctrina Christiana on preaching. But it's just a brilliant synthesis of these ideas that it's a mixed church, and we need to distinguish between essentials and what, what we call adiaphora, the things that, that don't matter for salvation and so on, while at the same time vigorously practicing a robust pastoral ministry and trying to usher the people of God through the way, the via of this life, and the via itself is Jesus Christ toward the homeland that we will reach in the heavenly Jerusalem. So, so it's all, you know, an eschatological uh, and teleological project. And Augustine put that together for us 
theologically and pastorally probably better than anyone else has. Yeah. Remembering the future and putting everything else in perspective by doing that. Amen. I've been speaking today with the Reverend Dr. Christopher Beely. Christopher, thank you so much for joining me today from your brand new office at Church of the Incarnation in Dallas, Texas. Thanks for having me, Amber. It's a pleasure. Blessings to you. Thank you. And next time you're in Deep Ellum, have some barbecue for me. I will. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. Subscribe to the Living Church Podcast today so you don't miss an episode. And you can join us back here in a month after our summer break for a journey across England by bus, train, and cobblestone walks with a dip into the blue and green mountains of Wales to discover Anglican heritage through sound, conversation, music, and personal reflection. Until then, our producer is Leslie Thompson. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been good to be with you. Peace. Peace.